long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Mike? Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh, well, I thought I lost it there for a second. You there? I'm still here. I, w- I was waiting. I thought oh. that I thought that pause was. I know you were. You're going to try to do that sort of. Uh, I almost want to call I it like a, a Dan Ratherism. That kind of dates me, obviously, but some kind of a folksy type. Well, of sort of like a, like a, a Norm Norm Peterson sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like in you know the the. I get or, it. In, yeah, um, some kind uh, of cheer, cheers. You know, yeah, absolutely. Again, we're dating ourselves, not but uh, at least at least I'm not that clever. I'm not that clever on Saturday morning. So. No, that that I think that's probably it. Absolutely. So anyway, well, let's get right to it. Uh, greetings aside, so I, I thought the obvious place to start today would be with uh, the further escalation in the trade war between the United States and China. Uh, to kind of bring everything up to date, late last week, of course, U.S. tariffs of two hundred billion dollars on Chinese goods jumped from. 10 to 25 percent. And then in addition, President Trump is now considering imposing tariffs on it on another $300 billion in Chinese imports. And this came, of course, amid the failure of what really both sides expected to be a major agreement. And the U.S. position here is that there was, in fact, an agreement in principle, but the Chinese backed out at the last minute, maybe due to pressure from some hardliners in China who were opposed to those concessions on intellectual property and state-sponsored industries. And then, of course, kind of this other aspect in here is the Trump administration putting the Chinese tech company Huawei on its so-called death list, which uh, essentially bans U.S. companies from selling to Huawei without a specifically authorized exemption. And this is possible because of President Trump's earlier this week declaration of a national emergency in which, as his statement puts it, foreign adversaries are increasingly creating and exploiting vulnerabilities in information and communication technology and services in a way that constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security, foreign policy and economy of the United States. And in response to all this, China announced plans to impose tariffs on $60 billion in U.S. imports. And so the upshot seems to be, well, markets reacted not so favorably, and as well as a number of Republicans in Congress who are, you know, I think getting more concerned about uh, the situation, especially in regards to farmers, who are the ones who are most likely to really feel these effects of tariffs most most directly and most, most strongly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so kind of in response to that, the administration's putting together an aid package of up to $20 billion in direct payments to farmers hurt by tariffs. And that's kind of modeled after the $12 billion program they, they put in place in 2018. So I think that kind of brings us up to speed. So Jay, um, what do you think about the latest which is, in all this? Which is in sort of, in some ways, kind of modeled off of the, the Chinese model of, of oh, state, yeah, exactly, state subsidized yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what do you think about what's happened in the last week here? Well, you, you, you skip the good news in, in that um, it, it sounds as if we have reached a sort of complete agreement with um, uh, Canada and Mexico. Right. On, uh, on, on, on getting rid of um, uh, the steel tariffs that, that had... Uh, uh, were were have been scheduled to go in place, um, but setting that aside, um, 
I mean, we we have talked about this forever, and you know that I am uh, in my heart a free trader. Um, and the the question is, uh, you know, is is this the the method to get to for your trade? Because I I think um, the idea. The, the the biggest issue, uh, to my mind, I think, to a lot of U.S. companies, uh, it's it's not uh, this you know Chinese China can produce it cheaper or something like that. It is the the intellectual property uh, issue, and that is something that's sort of unique uh, that that uh, we're we're dealing with uh, with China. Um, and there's there's national security. Uh, pieces that kind of go along with that, right? I mean, and the the rule just just uh, uh, you know very briefly is is typically China requires uh, if you're going to be doing business in China that you essentially open a joint venture with a Chinese company, uh, which is typically also the Chinese state. Um, which means that if you are a, a tech company or have some sort of uh, intellectual property, you are sort of giving that away uh, to a Chinese company when you choose to do business with with China, and and that's a that's a tremendous problem. I think that's a problem that is is long term. It's it's not tenable. Um, so I look. I'm I am uh, I, I I'm not in favor of a trade war, um, but uh, I. You know, this this is at least has the virtue of not being tried yet, uh, and we'll see if the Chinese eventually uh, sort of sort of fold. And it, it sounded like they were close on that issue. Um, you know, I it's I, I guess I, I I'm sort of stumbling here because there's a lot I don't know, right? I mean, as far as what's going on behind the scenes, uh, the markets, I mean, yeah, did drop, but but not precipitously. So I think I think the the sense that I get from from the markets is that they they anticipate there will be a resolution. Uh, it might not be as quick as had been hoped for. Yeah. Well, so I guess that's that's my kind of uptake. Is, um, yeah. I mean, from obviously from the the Adam Smith uh, old school conservatism uh, type view, tariffs are are a bad thing. Um, if this is if this is being used in service of eventually having a flatter. Uh, more level playing field uh, than than maybe they serve their purpose, um, but it it just remains to be seen. Yeah, well, you know, uh, something that President Trump reportedly said is, and this was in a you know one of these anonymous sources, private conversation kind of thing. But uh, he said, unless we stand up now, there's not going to be a chance to do it in the future. And I get the sentiment, and and I actually agree with it to to uh, to a certain extent. And I think you know something that that a lot of people have been saying as well, it almost might be a little bit too late now and that the time to deal with China from a position of strength would have been, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. But I think kind of in response, not necessarily disagreeing with that, but it's important to kind of look back at the history a little bit here and understand this. You know, China was admitted to the the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in December of 2001. And if you take a look at China's GDP, it basically rises kind of like a like a hockey stick, essentially, like a like a kind mm-hmm. of a J curve from the mid 2000s on. I mean, their average GDP growth from 2001 through 2017, over 9%, which is which is enormous, obviously. And the bet that we and the rest of the really international kind of community were making was that, well, as China prospered economically, they liberalized in a lot of other ways. And 
actually, to a certain extent, that kind of happened for a while. But certainly when, when Xi Jinping came into power in 2013, we started to see that changing, I think, in a, in a, you know, in a certain way. And so, you know, that I don't necessarily know that that's still a bad bet. I mean, if you look back even further to the 1980s, Japan and South Korea were both accused of technology threat theft and that sort of thing, the kind of stuff that China is doing right now. But what we found is that, well, as their, uh, as their per capita GDP started to rise, they started to see the calculus a little bit differently, and they shifted to becoming what we would consider, you know, better players in, in the yeah. international community. And so, uh, one one estimate put that number at where that shift really started to happen was twenty five thousand dollars per person. Now China's currently at sixteen sixteen thousand seven hundred per person. So it would still be a little while. So there's one argument to say, you know, this is being over dramatized and we just need to be patient. I'm not entirely convinced by that argument because I think there's a difference in scale here that concerns me. Um so so there's that, but but I you know I think there's this natural tendency to overreact to these things, which is not to say that there isn't a, a potential threat. I certainly think there is one. Potential threat from from economic threat from economic from the, and, the sanction from from the the problems of a trade war or from the the continuation of of uh, the status quo with China. I, I think I think both actually, you know. Yeah. But but I think that the trade war to me the longer term concern is the status quo, especially in terms of the security issues. And so, you know, right. if you're going to be sanguine about it, you just say, well, you know, it'll, it worked out with China or with, sorry, with Japan and South Korea, it'll probably work out with China. I'm, I'm a little less right. comfortable about that, but right. I think another you're, you're point, dealing with, you're dealing with two, you know, Japan and South Korea have, uh, what we would call liberal democratic, uh, governments. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, on the other hand though, you know, I, I think while I, a sympathize and to a certain extent agree with President Trump in, in the national security and so forth. And that's why I think even though, you know, pushing Huawei like this seems extreme, given the given their position in networking technologies, especially future like 5G networking technologies, I, I think that's not unreasonable. But I disagree with his approach. You know, for instance, I, I think that we just don't have the clout anymore to deal with China in this way, to press them unilaterally. Uh, one thing I think we definitely made a huge mistake in doing is pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, um, I think we should have worked way harder to, to stick in there and, and to, give, you know, to give China sort of a, a carrot more than just these threats right. of, uh, of sticks. And in fact, there was a, um, there's a great report on sort of the advantages, what the advantages would have been of sticking into the TPP. In fact, just currently, because the TPP is still a thing, the countries currently in it without the U.S. have a GDP nearly equal to that of China. And there are just a ton of benefits we're not getting by pulling out of that. There's a great paper on this I came across from the Senate's Republican Policy Committee, and it really outlines a lot of this stuff. And in fact, I'll put a link up to this in the show notes. I thought it was really uh, a really useful way to look at this. And again, so while I agree with President Trump that, yeah, we need to to do something and act more forcefully, 
the way to do it is not unilaterally. The way to do it is is multilaterally. I think. Um, I in I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you on that. I mean, I you know I've, the TPP. I'm I'm all all for that. And again, that that goes to sort of the more traditional um, uh, conservative view of international economics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I but again. Um, you know, maybe maybe that was the case, and and I think maybe the TPP and and U.S. sort of reevaluating its its position uh, as to that um, could put a little extra pressure on China. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount the the adverse effect that the sanctions can have on on China. It's and and this is what Trump is betting on is that look, it's going to hurt both countries, but it's going to hurt them more uh, and hurt them faster. Um, yeah, I, I think that's and, a bad and, bet. And well, the reason why I think that's a bad bet is because if you look at the sort of pain that China's government has been able to impose on its people without any, you know, without any kind of ramifications, sure. I mean, they they forced a lot of austerity on people for to to achieve certain political ends, whereas. Yeah. We just don't have a political system that's designed to do that. So I think, you know, you could argue maybe where economically in the long term, the U.S. might be in a better position to impose this. But politically, and that's the important thing, we're not in a better position because eventually if things go too far, even the president's own, you know, Republican party members are going to start abandoning him on this. And we're seeing, you know, some some signs of this, certainly even now. And as that pressure gets greater and greater, the political will is just not going to be there in the United States, whereas it will be there in China. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, when the, the political will is sort of, you know, more or less one guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of yeah. You know, and uh, my, my other concern on this, Jay, is that the tariffs, when they really start hitting, and it's going to be a while before consumers really feel the, right. the hit from that. But of course, tariffs aren't just taxes. They're regressive taxes, you know, meaning that, you know, obviously the the poorest people are going to have the greatest hit. And I think it's great that they're trying to do something to kind of insulate farmers from this, certainly. But, you know, a lot of people are going to feel the hit. You you think about everything that's that's manufactured or assembled in China and you go from 10 to 25 percent on that. There's no way that there's no way that manufacturers can basically just eat those costs. They have to pass those costs along to along to consumers. Yeah, or or I mean, in in some cases, if they're able to manufacture somewhere else, they can do that. Yeah. And that, but of course, what, then what, there are costs. There are huge that's, costs, that's not, in, and that's yeah. not something you can just do on a dime, obviously. Yeah. So and and even so, even if they were thinking about that, then there's the, there's the consideration of well, how long will this be in effect, and do we want to start changing up our supply chains when maybe exactly. in a couple of years? So we can hold. Well, if you can just hold out, yeah, you know, a couple more months. Exactly. I, I think. I mean, it, Trump's Trump's. He had made the statement uh, some at some point last week when it was sort of on again, off again, that um, you know he sees this. This is going to get done. This is going to get over. And I, I think he's right because I think the way Donald Trump operates um, is he gets to a point where he's going to try to make the best deal he can get, uh, or try to get you know the, the absolute best deal, uh, and then you know eventually retreat to the best deal he can get and then take it. Well. We'll and I think that's, I think that's how this this ends up. So I man, I hope you're right. You have maybe a little more faith in in the president's negotiating savvy than I do. But but we'll see. You know, the the one other before we move on, the other part I wanted to mention about this is the the trade deficit issue, which really in the past certainly President Trump has hammered on a lot. Now 
it seems like he's moving a little bit more to focus on the security issues, which I think is right, because I think what a lot of people, especially maybe the president, don't seem to grasp is that, you know, the the trade deficit is much more about the fact that uh, we don't save a whole lot and we spend a ton. And so it's not like if we change things with China, the trade deficit would go away, it might shift to other countries and so forth. You know, and this isn't just me talking. This is a lot of economists would say that. In fact, there was, uh, uh, you know, Martin Feldstein, who was uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Ronald Reagan, basically said, you know, this is this is just kind of nuts, this focus on that, because the problem is fundamentally that we're spending way too much and we're not saving nearly enough. And that's not that's not going to change with any kind of a deal with China. Right. Well, and you could and I, I think I think Feldstein's right. Um, to the, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily well, we're spending too much, but we're spending more and we have more to spend. How? Uh, if you follow. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, ultimately, I mean, uh, if we're going to if we're spending more than we have, we have to borrow that money. It comes from somewhere else. And we spend we spend a lot. Oh, more and, and you're, are you talking are you talking government spending or consumer spending? No, consumer spending. I thought you were talking consumer spending. I am talking consumer yeah. spending. Yeah. Well, well, but with consumer spending, again, we've got uh, a lot more uh, income to, to spend than, than, say, the average person in China does. And we have a strong dollar, uh, which means we can buy more from yep. overseas. Um, at at uh, a lower cost now, um, I, so I, I'm I'm with you. I've never I've never seen trade deficits as uh, again. This is this is a wonderful sort of we're agreeing on uh, pretty classic, much everything. Uh, I think we're Adam agreeing here, yeah. Kind of kind of stuff, yeah. right? Um, so uh, yeah, I'm I, I I might I might disagree with the difference of well, it's because we have a trade deficit because we're not saving enough, um, but. Uh, uh, other than that, I, I think that's that analysis is right on. I mean, a trade deficit in and of itself uh, shouldn't be cause right. for alarm or shouldn't be cause for change for, for public policy. Uh, the security stuff and the protecting uh, intellectual property of American companies, I think, is, though. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as you said, trade is one of these issues that you and I tend to be not well, almost in lockstep on, I would say. So as yeah. opposed to some other things like I don't know if this is going to be one of those things. But of course, moving to domestic politics this week, uh, Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey signed into law the most restrictive anti-abortion legislation in the United States. The new law bans abortions in all cases when a woman is known to be pregnant, making exception only for cases of serious health risk to the prospective mother. Now, there was a Democratic amendment that would have added in a rape and incest exception, and that actually failed 21 to 11 in the state Senate. The penalty for providing an abortion under the law would be, you know, pretty severe with uh, up to a 99 year prison sentence. Now, of course, Alabama, like a number of other states that have passed similar bans, they know that these laws are not constitutionally permissible at present, but they've passed them specifically to provide the Supreme Court with an opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade. And you know, I went back this week to actual text of Roe versus Wade, and um, in, there are a couple of there's one passage in particular I thought was important. Uh, Justice Blackman, who authored the majority opinion, at one point wrote the uh, the the Pelly and certain Amici argue that the fetus is a person within the language and meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. In support of this, they outline at length and in detail the well-known facts of fetal development. If this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses. 
And then Blackman went on to state that all this together with our observation that throughout the major portion of the 19th century, prevailing legal abortion practices were far freer than they are today, persuades us that the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not, um, does not include the unborn. Uh, and, and so I thought mm-hmm. that was you know, particularly relevant. So, Jay, um, uh, what do you think about Alabama's law? I mean, I guess in a couple of ways, particularly, uh, what sort of a test case it might provide the Supreme Court? And, of course, the big question that a lot of people are talking about this week, if you expect this court to eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, so I'll tell you, the, the Alabama law is, is written in such a way, and there was, there was some, some really interesting stuff that I've read on this. Um, you know, there are sort of two schools of thought uh, in, in the right to life movement, and one is the incremental uh, approach, uh, the other is the go for broke. And, and this is sort of the go for broke. Um, but, but they're doing, they're doing it in sort of a, a, a different way and, and keying off that, that what you just read from justice Blackman, um, because if you hadn't said that I would, um, I probably wouldn't have had the whole quote handy, but, um, <laughs> the, the idea that Alabama, what, what, what their legal theory is, um, they're not just saying uh, we are prohibiting abortion uh, because we want to prohibit abortion. Uh, the bill, uh, as, as signed into law now, recognizes uh, of right. uh, of a fetus, and so their argument is going to be: Look, uh, well, uh, Justice Blackman, uh, he looked back and said, uh, "There's nothing we can find where." the 14th Amendment has been interpreted to be a person, or a fetus has been interpreted to be a person uh, for the purposes of the 14th Amendment. Um, But, and historically, we don't find any precedent for that. Um, But does the state have a right then uh, to to establish that personhood, right? I mean, there's there's also a, uh, you know, the idea under the Constitution that, uh, well, even if you don't have a federal right, uh, states can still recognize, you know, beyond that, that's, you know, the constitution well, is a, a floor, not a ceiling. And that, and that's why I think at least following that logic, while Alabama really couldn't include rape or incest, uh, exceptions, because then the exactly. logic falls apart, either, either a fetus is a person or it's not. And if it's a person, well, you don't get to, you don't get to kill that person in, in this kind of logic just because that person yes. happened to be the result of rape or incest. Now, the health, health risk to the mother is different because then you're weighing the life of another person. And so then you have that kind of balancing test. So, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that logic, but I, but I understand it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think this is, is, I mean, as far as will, will Roe versus Wade be overturned? Um, that I I still think there there would be tremendous reluctance. Yeah. Um, from from uh, or John Roberts uh, to do that. Uh, I think there would be reluctance even amongst if you want to say the the real conservative uh, you know wing to do that without uh, at least on a on a five four ruling. Yeah. Um, I I think when and if Roe versus Wade gets overturned. Uh, it needs to be much more than a five four four ruling. Um, so I, I'm I'm not sure. And again, we've got probably a couple of years till this actually percolates its way up uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, but before this one does, but, of course, uh, I mean there I, there are some other cases as well. I think there's another Alabama there's numerous, yeah, case from 2016, bills. right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the court could act 
more quickly than this. And so some people are saying, well, why is, why is Alabama doing, doing this right now if, as a test case, if there are already other test cases? And, of course, part of it is, you know, playing to your base. Right. Right. Well, I mean, this is, this is something that, um, again, when you say Alabama, I mean, what we're talking about are the people of Alabama and the, the representatives they elected. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's, that's the thing of, um, it's, it's a democratic sort of, that's, that's what the people want. And, and, uh, I think this is, um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what the, what the courts do I, with this. And, and again, think, the, the idea of expanding personhood is sort of a novel yeah. approach to it. And I think, you know, your point about the reluctance, especially among someone like uh, John Roberts to have this be a five, four decision is, is an important thing. You know, Roe was, was a seven to two decision. And, uh, and, and so certainly I think that's, a, that's an important thing to, to bring up, but let, let's say that did happen that they did, or they will eventually overturn it. Of course, this wouldn't make abortion illegal, but it would lead to, well, it would leave it up to the states then, essentially. And, right. you know, if that happened, this actually, you could make an argument, would be to the long-term economic detriment of the states that have rather draconian uh, anti-abortion laws. I mean, because there are, I, I, I can, yeah, you know, I can think there'd be plenty of men and women who want contraceptive options who would be a lot less likely to move to states or to stay in states that wouldn't give them that right to do that. You know, I mean, so I, I think. Well, I think they have plenty of. Uh, they have. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll quibble a little with the. the uh, uh, I think they have plenty of contraceptive options, uh, even in Alabama. Post, post but, sec, uh, I mean, right now, if this goes through, the only yeah, post sexual yes. activity contraceptive option would be the Plan B pill, basically. You know, and so uh, that, yeah. but, but that would be well, essentially. Again, if you. Yeah. So but again, you know, the word contraceptive. But right. Well, and you know. Is is. Go ahead. It, 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 it is embodied in the word of like pre uh, uh, sure. conception. That's what so. you're saying. Right, right, right. Now, there is an argument, an interesting argument from actually from the left, well, at least some parts of the left, that Roe versus Wade was actually a pretty much, aside from in the area of reproductive rights, which is hugely important, actually has been an impediment to progressive politics in a lot of areas. Again, outside of reproductive rights. How so? So basically, well, yeah, basically by energizing, you know, what became the religious right that have kind of provided the votes to elect a lot of Republican politicians, of course, including Donald Trump, who have basically pushed for what we on the left would definitely say are incredibly regressive policies kind of across the board. Now, I, I'm not saying that that wasn't, you know, worth the worth the trade off, but, you know, it, it's uh, I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting argument. And certainly if you didn't have those pro-life voices say, you know, uh, voting for Donald Trump, I think there's a good chance that Donald Trump, you know, isn't president of the United States. But of course, you know, I just wanted to kind of throw that, well, throw no, that's, that out that's there. That's a possibility, but I think those, those pro-life voices would have still voted for someone other than Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, maybe, but, but I think the argument is essentially that once you kind of make it a, well, we need the judges on the court to overturn Roe, but you take right. that argument away, then all of a sudden that drains some of the energy because really oh, exactly no there are, there are plenty of, of Republicans and and um, who, who think that uh, Trump is is noxious but yeah. he will appoint good judges yeah. and they're willing to live with that trade off yeah. uh, and I would I would say that the counter counterpoint to your argument would be that um, 
well, it's it's the the left that sort of put the courts into play, right? Uh, in the first place. Uh, so the left, um, that last part, um, I wanted to get some clarification on. It's the left. Well, the the, 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 the idea that, in the play. That, that Roe versus, I guess this is just sort of the flip side of what what you're arguing. Um, if if there hadn't been an, an activist judiciary, and, and I think. And you and I sometimes sometimes differ on when we, we talk about uh, a judicial activism, but but I think we would agree that regardless of where you want to come out on the merits, Roe was judicial activism, right? Well, in in what sense? In in that it created a it created a new right that had not been found before. Well, I wouldn't it go. Had not been legislatively established. That was really not found in precedent. They sort of stretched sure. precedent. To say, well, it sort of uh, emanates from the the various penumbras of of other rights, uh, which which were sort of penumbral in the first place. Um, I know that's the standard position on the right. I disagree with that to a certain extent. I would say that certainly dating back to you know even pre constitutional common law, there's there's an established, very well established right to privacy. And and the argument from the left, and one that I have a lot of sympathy for, is that kind of fund one of the most fundamental parts of the right to privacy is essentially the right for government not to tell you what you can and cannot do with your own body. And so I think that that's a natural, logical connection to the right to privacy. And yeah, the word privacy does not appear anywhere in the Constitution, but I think that's pretty well established. And so I don't see it as nearly as much of a stretch as you do. Okay. Well, I, again, I'm I'm talking federal constitution versus what states could do. But I, I think there's 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 something else that's that I think is fascinating in that certain states, um, uh, New York among them, um, have also sort of taken this this approach of well, Roe is going to be undone, so we're going to take preemptive approaches right. and sort right. of establish uh, a positive right to to abortion, um, much as Alabama is sort of trying to establish a positive right to personhood. Um, and, and I think the arguments are, are fascinating just from the political sense, because you, you then fall into those, uh, areas where, uh, the, believe the governor of, um, uh, Virginia sort of stepped in it on these very questions, because it becomes, uh, the establishing the positive right to abortion, I think is the tougher uphill battle politically than the right to personhood. Right. Yeah, I, I see. I see what you're saying. At least you start getting it because you necessarily, in 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 those cases, in drawing up the legislation, um, you have to say a a person does not exist, and and up through, and including, you know, during during birth, even. So I I think I just think that's an interesting dynamic. I'm not arguing one way or the other, but I, I actually I think that's it's sort of right. healthy, right? Well, to, to argue that on on both sides and at the legislative level rather than at the courts. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I don't I don't entirely I don't entirely agree, but I do agree that that certainly as a general rule, it's better for the legitimacy of decisions when they are reached through the democratic process rather than through the courts. Though I think the kind of a countervailing factor is there are certain fundamental rights that shouldn't be legislated through the democratic process and that's because they are in fact fundamental rights you know and so and so i you know i i think there's a good case to be made that the right for a woman to do what she wants with her body is a fundamental right and so that's where you and i i would say probably part company on this one yeah i think so well again it's we'll we'll see what the the, the courts do yeah. because this is going to present a different kind of a different kind of look at it yeah but but i i agree with you i don't really think 
I don't really think, at least in the next couple of years, that Roe will be overturned in its entirety. I see more kind of a gradual chipping away thing. Now, of course, if... Or or a, or sort of a Casey approach, because, I mean, there's, yeah, there's yeah. a big argument. It's right. not, and it's not a frivolous argument that Roe has really sort of already been overturned. Well, at least... In, in the way, in the framework that, that, that right. it uses. Right. So I, I guess that would change. I would think the calculus changes if... Donald Trump gets one or two more appointees to the court, and you know that could potentially happen. Obviously, that, that but given the current court, I, I don't I don't see it happening at least in the next couple of years. But we will see. Yep. All right. Well, before we get to our next story, uh, you know, I was going to say, Jay, if you remember back when we did ads, remember that? Yeah, a long time ago. You know, fun. if we did ads, this is where we do one. But of course, we don't anymore. Um. You know, and, and we made a decision about that. But, you know, in the end, you're not a demographic that we want to market to. And we don't want the politics guys to be a vehicle that aver- advertisers can use to convince you that, I don't know, your life would be so much better if you had their stamps or their mattresses or their razors. Yeah. We're just not showing for the man. You know, exactly. But of course, that means we need your support to keep the show going. And we really do appreciate it. All of our great supporters on Patreon. I want to take a minute to thank our two most recent supporters, Julie and Linda. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And of course, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter, you get more than our thanks. All supporters at any level get access to our weekly bonus show. And there are a bunch of other things we put together for supporters at various levels, like, well, special policy shows, um, politics guys, coffee mugs and tote bags. In fact, Jay, I'm finally going to be sending out the first shipment of mugs and bags to supporters in the awesome. next few. I, I'd meant to get to it earlier. Sorry, sorry, guys. It, it's been a crazy semester, but I'm getting them out this week. I promise. Um, we've got a, a private Facebook group where we've had some, I think, really great conversations, not just about politics, but about really the direction of the show. And and you can even become an executive producer on the show. And so to check out all that stuff, go to patreon.com slash politics guys. It's patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Thank you so very much. All right, moving on. The Supreme Court, back to the Supreme Court, on Monday, they allowed a class action antitrust suit against Apple to move forward. Now, this was a five to four decision, but it was a little unusual because Justice Kavanaugh joined the court's four liberals, and it could potentially open the door for similar lawsuits against other tech giants like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, all of whom, by the way, wrote briefs arguing that the court should not allow this case to go forward. Now, this was this stems from something a suit originally filed in 2011. And it alleges that Apple engages in monopolistic practices by forcing device owners to buy through Apple's App Store, where the company takes up to a 30% share of sales commissions for, for sale, well, for things that actually cost. There are a lot of apps on there that are free as well. Yeah. Now, Apple's argument is that according to a previous ruling, only a direct purchaser of a service is eligible to bring this sort of a suit. And Apple says, hey, we're only a middleman. We're just connecting buyers and sellers. And by the way, we're providing quality assurance and security. And because of that, we're entitled to a share of the proceeds. Now, Justice Kavanaugh, who spoke from the bench on this, uh, found this, uh, I would say, unpersuasive. He said that Apple's position contradicts the text of the antitrust statute, which broadly affords any injured party a right to sue. And in his yeah. written opinion, Kavanaugh added that the company's argument was a way to gerrymander Apple out of this and similar lawsuits. And so now the case will go back to federal district court. And 
you know, it's probably going to likely be a few years at least before there's either a ruling or a settlement. But uh, I think the big thing here is just the very fact that you, according to the court, you can't use this, hey, we're just the middleman argument. You can't sue us uh, to, to go forward. And again, this has Apple, this has implications, not just for Apple, but to anyone who set up this kind right, of right. A, this kind of a service. So, um, Jay, what do you think about this decision? Which, you know, this is I'll tell you, this is this is something that is is fascinating because I, I you know, I read the uh, uh, the majority opinion and then I read the dissent and I sort of found myself agreeing with both of them. Um, which is hard to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so no, this is a this is a a, a tough case, and I, I think this is. Uh, I mean, actually, I, I this is a, a case that a lot of people should read, just because this is sort of this, the kind of thing I think the Supreme Court should do. Right, this is sort of the operating at its highest and arguing over essentially what the real holding of this Illinois brick case uh, was. Um, uh, in the end, I would probably say Kavanaugh got it right uh, in that. And again, that's that's sort of you know who cares what I say? I'm not in the Supreme Court, but um, as I care, Jay, the, I care. Yeah, the, the idea, no, the idea that uh, you know on a motion to dismiss uh, that that uh, you know look you you look at this in in the view most favorable to the plaintiff. And Kavanaugh sort of says we don't know that whether they're actually going to prevail because it it could well be that uh, this is a suit where there's no damages, right? Um, because, uh, there, there was going to be a lot of economic analysis that goes into this and the plaintiffs would have to show that, you know, they actually had there been some other kind of competition, uh, they could have purchased, uh, you know, one of these apps for, you know, 35 cents as opposed to 99 cents, um, or something like that. And, and I, I think that's going to be difficult to do. Um, which is, which so, is why, by the way, which is why, by the way, that class and we've we've kind of this is the, the point where we'll disagree, which is why I believe class action suits are so important, because that the problem is for any individual, oftentimes the damage will be very limited, and, which is why it's not going to be worth any individual's time or money to go ahead and pursue legal action, especially against a, you know, a very big and well-heeled kind of company, obviously like, like sure. Apple, they don't get any bigger, but if you bring them together in a class, all of a sudden you can bring to bear that, that weight and have some sort of a countervailing force and basically force companies to not engage in unfair monopolistic practices. Yeah. Well, and, I guess I, and that's that's of course the big question though is 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 this an unfair monopolistic right. practice and that's not a question that the court looked at right right uh, the court only looks at uh, have they alleged that it's unfair monopolistic yeah and at this stage of the the pleadings you accept that as as yeah. true yeah you know the, this this argument was essentially overstanding um, it it certainly seems good uh, it certainly seems to me Jay certainly that Apple's position at least is very paternalistic I mean I would think the libertarian in you would hear the argument. We're protecting you from bad apps by basically giving you no choice because we don't want you to have a choice because you're going to get stuff that's going to screw up your computer and just be awful. And so trust us as yeah. opposed to that. Doesn't that rankle a little bit? Well, not necessarily, because that's to me. And I think this is the, the argument that Apple would, would make. It's all part of their product. It's all part of part of their brand. Um, if you if you're concerned about the choice of uh, in apps that you have. Uh, then, uh, then get an Android. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's. I think that would be the argument. Is that, um, you know, we we present a a limited uh, front for for ours, 
our our platform because we're we're trying to uh, protect the the image the brand uh, of of that that platform. Um, no, that's interesting. It, I, so you so you're saying basically that hey here we have this we have this lovely curated walled garden here yeah. and if you don't like that well then you can go to you can go to Windows or Linux or Android or whatever where there's much more openness and choice that kind of you know and I guess I, I guess on sort of a temperamental level. I like that anarchy choice sort of thing, and so I kind of, I kind of, I just, I personally rank. What if you go to go to the the hardware store and um, oh, how how about this? You ever you ever like, uh, you know, want to buy a new flag, right? Sure, I bought new flags for the front yard. You're you're a patriot, absolutely. Um, Well, you you will see every single flag will be prominently labeled as "Made in the USA," right? That's right. They pretty much are. Yeah, nowadays. Um, now I could make the argument that, well, hell, the Chinese could probably make a, a much cheaper flag that would, would suit my needs just as well. But, but I have, you know, because the store has chosen only to, um, uh, sell flags made in America, my choice has been limited. Uh, and, and therefore I'm a, an antitrust, uh, a victim of, of monopolistic practices. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's sort of the the argument that you could also go and say, look, the store has a right to decide what products they're going to sell. So so basically, especially it's different in the sense because there is in fact an alternative for people, you know, a viable real alternative. It's not like Apple is, you know, they have like just, just shy of half of all smartphone sales. And so clearly there's, there's robust competition, at least with one you know, with one other operating system, Android. So you can kind of go with that. So yeah, I think that and, and also you say most most of the apps that we're talking about are available for Apple or Android. Right. Yeah. Now there are some things. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's there are there would be some that are only available on one or the other. But yeah, pretty much pretty much, you know, that that when when that happens, it's they're only available on uh, on uh, Apple, and that's because you know that's where the cool kids develop all their stuff first. And we Android people just have to wait for it to kind of filter down to the to the huddled masses, I guess that sort of thing. But anyway, um, you know, another point I wanted to make about this, though, even without a ruling or a favorable settlement, I think this can still be really important because this sort of thing can shift corporate behavior, uh, you know, to an extent. Because if Apple and other companies know that they're even potentially legally vulnerable, they can they may actually change their behavior to avoid problems in the future. And to me, that's one of the many benefits of, well, strong antitrust law and the ability for people to bring these sort of suits because it actually, I would argue, prevents certain types of behavior. And so I think this is potentially a good thing in and of itself. Well, yes and no. I mean, the dissent makes the makes the point though that this is that that the the Illinois brick line, which is that only the direct purchaser has standing, or the direct purchaser has standing to sue, right. uh, is sort of artificial. And and look, Kavan, that's this is where I'm saying Kavanaugh is is right uh, in that um, it, when you buy an uh, app from the Apple Store, it's like you send your money to Apple, and Apple sends you the app. So that you are the direct purchaser from Apple, right, um, right. as opposed to from from the manufacturer of the app or the developer. Um, an easy way around this for Apple, it might not be an easy way, but it's certainly a way around it, would be just to change the system to reconfigure it so that your purchases go through whoever the app developer is. Right. And, and you know, the money is does not go to, to Apple directly, and they could say, we're not going to take a cut of, of these apps or get a royalty. Um, uh, and you know that's sort of what our, our our trade-off is from you know when we might charge people for access to our platform um 
but uh, I don't think that's that's not in and of itself a problem. I, I think so, it might I, be. A, I think so. The, yeah. the, the minority that point, points out, look, there's a lot of ways to get around this sort of artificial line if this is the if this is the case. And, and in a lot of cases, I would say that's probably a less efficient way. Yeah. Economically. Yeah, a lot it. less. But, I, I always say I always think of Apple as sort of the Singapore of the technology world. You know, they built up this kind of, this, this kind of shiny, beautiful structure, but you know, you have to pretty much play by their rules. And if you don't like that, well then, you know, you're, you're, you're out of luck, basically. You're kind of into the wilderness of, of windows, or if you're really kind of crazy, the, the Linux world, that sort of thing where I've, where I've dabbled from, from time to time, you know, Jay, you know me, Jay, there's kind of my inner yeah. anarchist that just wants to just sort of, you know, if I were in Singapore, I'd be, I'd, I'd be so, so inclined to want to spit on the sidewalk, you know, just, just because. because exactly yeah anyway um moving on our final story this week uh, late this week the trump administration released a new immigration plan though maybe more of an outline really that would significantly change the allocation of permanent residency green cards but without changing the or lowering the overall cap on the number of green cards that be that can be granted every year now, the proposal would move the system from one that's largely family tie based to one that more heavily favors education and you know, potential economic impact that applicants would likely have. Now, everyone knows that this plan is dead on arrival. In fact, both parties have said that, but it's really more of a blueprint for what could happen under different circumstances, more favorable or unfavorable, depending on how you look at it. Um, on the right, it's taking heat for not actually lowering the number of permanent residents, and on the left, for not being comprehensive enough. Now, Jay, my view on this is that we should move to a more skills and education-based policy, but I'd want to see that coupled with a pretty big increase in the cap on green cards. I mean, it's been 675000 for over 20 years now, and to my view, the basis, of course, for any legislative compromise has to be, you know, compromise. And I don't see this plan offering anything to proponents of increased immigration, which I am, which I am one. And so I would say if, for instance, this is a proposal that a serious proposal would be something like we're going to shift it to more skills and education, but we're going to raise the cap to, say, 800,000. And we'll, we'll build in a series of increases over time, maybe based on something like population growth. And then, then that would maybe be a more serious legislative proposal, basically. So that, that's my take. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're right as far as where you want to end up. And I, I, again, we're pretty much agreeing on everything this show. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, no, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm in the same same boat as as you there. I think we we're better off with a merit based system, uh, and at the same time, we've got uh, uh, more jobs than we have people to to fill them. Um, and we are also going to be in a position where we have uh, more Social Security and other um, um, entitlement recipients than we have to pay for them. So I I, I think um, uh, you know, and our our birth rates are are low. Um, uh, despite Alabama's efforts, and uh, you know, so I, yeah, I think I, I don't think there's any any issue, and I think there's a, there's a, quite a number of conservatives who don't have any issue with increased immigration. Uh, their problem is illegal immigration, uh, or or this uh, immigration that's that's not tied to any real rationale other than, uh, well, I've got some other family member here and some other family, and it's sort of that that chain immigration that that is problematic. So. Um, 
Well, you know, but when, keep in mind this is this is an opening offer, and you wouldn't yeah. expect Trump to bid against himself. Well, and well, right? I mean, and of course, this really isn't an opening offer in the sense it's a campaign document, basically, yeah. because it's not. Again, Donald Trump has shown no interest in actually negotiating on anything, especially when it comes to details with with you know with the other party. But but that aside, you know, one thing that you don't hear talked about a whole lot is there's this immigration cap number. Now, where did yeah. it come from? Well, it came from the 1990 Immigration Act. But you know, these are things that I think we need to, to look at. Don't say, well, here's what the number is. I mean, why is it at that level? And should it be lower or higher? I mean, you know, in 19, 1990. And I when, think, well, I think the 1990 cap, wasn't that an increase over? Yeah, it was uh, yeah. in 1965. The cap was set, the 1965 Immigration, uh, immigration Act, the cap was set at 170,000. 1990, they bumped it up to 700,000 from 92 to 94, then 675,000 after that. And so, well, well another, I kind of, when I was looking at the history of this, interestingly, at least to me, I, I always worry about that word interestingly, because I sometimes say it in class <laughs> and I can picture the students saying, yeah, maybe you think it's interesting, buddy, but I don't. But in, in the 1952 Immigration Act, they set the cap not at a number, but at one sixth of one percent of the 1920 U.S. population, which I thought was kind of a <laughs> a weird thing to do, it it, yeah. it ended up being a, a little over 170 thousand by by my math at least. But uh, but and that's what that's kind of I had that idea of well, it kind of makes sense in a way to kind of peg the cap not to just some arbitrary number, but to take into account population growth and things like that. And you know and yeah. and you know I think you and I both agree. Donald Trump's kind of very cavalier statement is, hey, we're full. We can't handle any more people right. is obviously a ridiculous thing. And in fact, the job numbers suggest we could use more workers, that's, both skilled and unskilled. Are, there are a lot of economists who say that is that's what's really holding us back is, is yeah. we don't have the workers to fill these these jobs. Absolutely. And so this is this is one of these areas that it kind of if we had a president who was less legislatively inept. This would be an area, I would think, where at least potentially we could forge some sort of bipartisan compromise, because there are plenty of people on the right, like you, who would love to see increased legal immigration, you know, and there are plenty of people yeah. on the left who would like to see it, too. And, and this just it just kills me that there this is just such, I think, a wasted opportunity here. Well, here's here. I think the other the other issue that you're not looking at, um, uh, I think. You're maybe being a little over hope, hopefully hopeful that there are those on the left who would be able to. I, I don't I don't see anyone. Um, I shouldn't say anyone. Uh, very few people in the Democrat uh, legislature uh, who would who would be able to sign on to a merits based type immigration reform. Well, I, I just I think I think ideologically uh, it, 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 it could not be done. Well, I, I disagree. I would say that, for instance, right now, okay, let me give you an example. Right now, family-sponsored immigration is around 70% or so of all, you know, a green card issuance permanent residency. And that's, I think last year I figures for it's 480,000. So if you just essentially kept that number static and just boosted the total and allowed for much more employment base, which right now is 140,000, then I think you could you could potentially build some sort of a coalition, get enough people to come over. And again, that's why part of the proposal I would put into place would include increases over time to both of those categories. So, I mean, giving each side something or other. Yeah, I agree with you in the sense that if there was any proposal that basically said we're going to 
lower in real numbers the amount of family-sponsored immigration, that would be a problem and probably would be really difficult to get any kind of buy-in. But I think there are ways to kind of work around that and give both parties, you know, something that they want. So maybe well, I may, am being may, optimistic. May, maybe. I think I, I still think there would be a difficult, any, even the, the very argument um, and, and, and I, I bet we will get uh, uh, all sorts of hate mail on this, uh, on the idea of merit-based uh, immigration. Um, you think? I, I think, yeah, I, I think there is, there is going to be the, the open borders folks. Um, um, Who are those uh, people? I hear about those people a lot. But I don't actually that's, that's know any of those people. I think I feel like they're like well, these Trey, kind of Trey's these kind of mythical right. creatures, essentially. I mean, you know, Donald Trump tweeting that all oh, the Democrats want open borders and crime and chaos. And it's like, well, I don't know of any Democrats who are actually was, running. There on was, that. This was interesting. This was um, pictures that I saw. Um, it was actually at an art gallery, but it was, it was pictures from a um, uh, demonstration in, in downtown Cleveland, you know, against Trump and uh, for immigration. But there was someone, you know, not someone, a lot of people uh, holding signs that said um, deportation is uh, immoral. And and I, I thought, well, OK, then then what's what's your what's your alternative? Sure. Right? I mean. And, and I mean, if if if, if yeah. you're if if that if that's where you are, that that it is it is an, an immoral act to deport to, to get someone out of the country, uh, then you are necessarily open borders. Anybody who wants to come here can stay here, um, right? Because I'd assume they wouldn't be for for. Uh, detention or execution. So I mean, well, I, think it's sort of- I, 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 I see what you're saying, but I would disagree. I would say that, you know, given the given the I limited space on these placards, if you actually yeah. talk to some of these people, <laughs> they wouldn't say they would say, well, you know, under what about under this circumstance? They say, well, right, yeah, right. that makes sense. But I don't think we should send back somebody who did nothing wrong, who's in danger of being you know, persecuted in their in their home country. That that's what right, I mean. Right. And, that's, and that's the current law. Right. But how do you but I mean, certainly there are some people like who have been in the United States and have been law abiding contributors to society. And there have been, you know, cases of this that have been, you know, uh, featured in the media. They've they've been deported. And I think that's what the people who say deportation is immoral are talking about. But I think it's a bad idea to base to base I, I policy just, on what some yeah. protester has on their has on their piece of you know piece of cardboard i i, I you know i think that's probably you asked, a, me, a mistake. asked me where these people were i'm telling you okay that's fair you're you're right oh, i yeah. did ask you where these people were i'm just telling you fair enough i, I just don't They're think these people are making town cleveland with with these big signs fair enough just like there are neo-nazis <laughs> running around with their own signs and and fair thankfully enough, they're man. not the ones making policy so there we go all right. Well, on on the on the neo Nazi note, why don't we why don't we end things there? It's always good to end things on a neo Nazi note, I would guess. But we're not entirely ending things because, of course, if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, we are hey, we have the bonus show we're going to be doing in just a minute. And this week, I think Jay and I are going to be talking about that facial recognition ban in San Francisco and the latest entrance into the Democratic presidential sweepstakes, whatever you want to call it now. It's practically like a sweepstakes. Seems like everyone's entering. Uh, and so if you are if you are a supporter, you should have that in your podcast feed by the time you hear that. And if you're not, of course, you can go to Patreon or patreon.com slash politics guys. And there you go. You can become a supporter. So uh, that does it for this week. And again, if you have a question, comment, correction, just 
you know, want to reach out and say hi, you can do that mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us when we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, we really would appreciate it. That helps us out a lot. And word of mouth telling, telling us, you know, telling us we know about the show, but telling people who don't know about the show about the show, that would also be very helpful, as would leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.